Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is a legendary R&B and gospel-tinged soul singer who was one half of one of the most famous vocal duos of all time. It's Sam Moore of Sam and Dave. As part of Stax Records' legendary lineup of the 60s, Sam and Dave hit the charts over and over with such classics as Hold On, I'm Coming, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby, I Thank You, and Soul Man. Working with Isaac Hayes and David Porter, Sam and Dave emerged from the studio to co-headline the famous Stax Volt Review in Europe in March of 1967, touring alongside Booker T and the MGs, the Marquis, Eddie Floyd, Carla Thomas, and their co-headliner, Otis Redding. Sam and Dave's music has been covered by a who's who of legendary artists including ZZ Top, Linda Ronstadt with Aaron Neville, Elvis Costello, Bonnie Raitt, Peter Frampton, The Band, and Eric Clapton. Sam and Dave broke up in 1981, but Sam Moore has continued to perform and record as a solo artist, which he continues to do through today. Sam's a member of the Vocal Group Hall of Fame, the Grammy Hall of Fame, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The writer Dave Marsh has called Sam Moore the greatest living soul singer, and we were honored to host Sam in this conversation via Zoom in October of 2020. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I am thrilled to be able to introduce a living legend who is today's guest, somebody near and dear to the Atlantic Records and Warner Music family. He is the recipient of a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019, presented to him lovingly by Garth Brooks. He is the recipient of a MOBO, Music of Black Origin Lifetime Achievement Award, a Rhythm and Blues Foundation Pioneer Award, an inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992, the Grammy Hall of Fame, the Vocal Group Hall of Fame, 10 straight top 20 Billboard R&B hits between 1966 and 1968, an activist for artist rights and advocacy, according to the esteemed author and journalist Dave Marsh, the greatest living soul singer in the world. It is my privilege to welcome to Rock and Roll High School, Sam Moore. Hi, Sam. Hello there, my friend. How are you? I'm good. So nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you also. Thank you. So I would love to just jump in with you because we have so much to talk about. And there's so much rich history between you and Atlantic Records and Stax Records and Rhino Records and the Warner Music Group. So I'd love to just <laughs> jump in and, and start talking about you, your life and your music, if that's okay with you. It's okay with me. Go ahead. Excellent. So, Sam, you were born in 1935 in yes. Overtown, Florida, outside of Miami, and you live in Miami now. Tell us about growing up in Overtown. Well, what you call Overtown used to be called Colored Town, and then it was called Overtown later on as, uh, as I grew up. But living in Overtown at that time, today, it wouldn't be like it was back then. I didn't know there was segregation at that time. I didn't know that. I didn't even know the word ghetto. I just felt like this is the way it was supposed to be. But living in Overtown was pretty interesting, I must say. You were raised by your mom and your grandmother. They called your mother Baby. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. You had a nickname too, Sam, growing up. They called you Bubba. Yeah. When I was a baby, a little boy, I couldn't say bottle. 
So I, when they would try to get me to say bottle, I couldn't get that out. So I would say bubba, bubba. So that stuck. People that are close to me, uh, that I let get that close to me, they're the only ones that knows, and they will call me. Well, even my own daughter calls me Bubba. So, and and young Bubba spent a lot of time in the church in Overtown. Yes, that's interesting because in church, you got to understand. In, in, at that time, that my church was around the corner from where I lived with my mom and my grandmother. And, you know, I I was always in trouble when I got in church. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And uh, one time the minister was uh, trying to do an invocation. And I was just running my mouth. So he stopped. He said, Brother Bubba. And I said, and I looked up and he said, stand up and repeat the Lord's Prayer. I knew the Lord's Prayer, but I I forgot the words. (laughs) So I said, Our Father, which which, which out in heaven, hallowed be the Father. And it sounded like I was saying far. And my mother was in the choir, and she looked down at me, and she was rolling her eyes because... No such thing as no fart in it is in the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's nothing, nothing like that. And I got nervous. So when I got nervous, I got to fart, 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 And I stood there and I got so nervous until I did. That's the point to this whole story. I did. And the lady sitting there, she said, Miss Louise's son just farted. Well, it was in the book. So I, I know the story. But, oh, okay. you know, it, okay. it, it, it brings up a good point because you were a bit of a rebel as a child, Sam. You didn't listen to what your mother and your grandmother said. You basically did what you wanted to do. You know what? My grandmother gave me that, that opportunity because she loved her baby, her baby grandson so much. My mother, that's the only time my mother and grandmother would get into it about me because if I couldn't get anything out of my mother, I would go behind her back and I would ask my grandmother and I would, I would get it. And she, a lot of times she would say, well, yeah, I gave, Bubba asked me, so I said, well, I gave it to him, you know? And she said, mother, you got to stop this with him. He, he, this is wrong. So yeah, for a long time, we had a, a confrontation behind getting the things from mom and grandma. And and sometimes things got a little heated between you and your mother. And is it true that she actually pulled a gun on you? Yeah, she did. One time I got really out of out of class, out of pocket, as they call it today. And she was talking to me and she was standing over by the TV. And I said something very, very, very not, not nice. And uh, she picked the gun up of the TV. And I, I and I believe today that if she had been strong enough because she did have a, a bad heart and she was in and out of the, uh, the doctor's office, I really believe she would have shot, you know, if she could have because it was really insulting and I, and I really had a nasty mouth at that time. I really did. How old were you, Sam, when your mom pulled the gun on you? Oh, I had to be... I would say I had to be at least about 10 or 11, 12, maybe. Yeah, it was really ugly when I did that. And I know that you moved out of Overtown and you went Mm -hmm. to live with another set of relatives. Well, that was during the time, the only time that I saw my father. He came down here. He would take me to get a haircut. Then he would go to my, my auntie's house. I had a lot of auntie aunties and stuff, you know, and when I would come home, I would say to my mother, look, I have some I have some money and I have some candy and I have some baby Ruth. And she said, where are you getting this from? And I had different aunts that I called names. She said, you don't have that many aunts. You know, so I didn't know my dad was taking me to his girlfriend's house. So I, 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 
I thought that was very nice to, that they were nice to me. My aunties were nice to me. <laughs> I love the story about you wanting to play saxophone and you yes. convincing you know, your relatives to buy you a saxophone and then taking it to school. And I love who your school music teacher was. Yeah, yeah. I was such a incorrigible child until I was uh, my auntie, my aunt, that was a teacher and the dean of girls at uh, Dillard School in Fort Lauderdale. So they sent me there. So the man that I was going to class with turned out to be Cannonball Adderley. Cannonball Adderley, the legendary saxophone player. Julius, yes. And Julius Cannonball my, Adderley. Yes. And my aunt said, she said, Julius, she said, my nephew, he he's a musician from Florida, from Miami, and he was he played in the band there. He wants to join your, your your class. So he said, sure, Miss Pinkett. Yeah, Mom Pinkett. So I got into the music class, and he said, are you a beginner, uh, middle class, or a concert, or what? I said, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm concert. He said, you're concert? Good, good. So he puts me in the concert orchestra. And I had my saxophone. Well, he, I think he knew it right away when he told me to put my saxophone on. I, the mouthpiece was turned wrong way. Uh, yeah. And the <laughs> always, strap, always a, always a sign. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the strap, the strap went down to my navel, and the saxophone, you know, the saxophone was hanging. So he said, Sam, he said, bring your strap up a little bit. Bring it up. Bring it up. So I brought it up. And he got me straight with the saxophone, the mouthpiece. He said, pull your mouthpiece to a better shape. So we, you know, we're going, what you're going to, we got to get a key for you. So we'll be playing in a certain key. I said, okay, okay. So he said, we're going to play the song of the school. This is, this is our school and blah, 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 blah. So he said, I'm going to count off, and Sam, you're going to take a four, uh, eight bar solo, a four bar solo. And I said, okay. I didn't know what that was, but I, I, I thought I could get away with it. So when he counted off, I started. He started, and then he pointed to me for the solo, and he looked at me. Do you see it, Sam? I said, yes, sir. Can you read what's on the on the sheet? Yes, sir. Okay. Let's try it again. Bring it up closer. Bring some light to him so he can see it. Yes. So he, he counted it off again. And then when he pointed at me, I went, boop. And he said, Sam, are you okay? I said, yes, sir. So after two or three tries, he figured out. He said, Sam, you can't play. You can't play. I don't know. I don't know what, what, why you told your auntie this, but you can't play. Take it off. Take that saxophone off your your neck. So for the many years that after that, because uh, you know, at first he was a, a trumpet player, but his his lips were so large he couldn't get it. Uh, he couldn't get it around, so he had to stop. And he got that so that alto be came his saxophone. Now, I'm pretty sure over the years he changed up, but uh, at the beginning, it was my saxophone he was playing because huh. I couldn't play. <laughs> I couldn't know. But you did graduate high school, and shortly after yeah. your graduation, you started singing in your first yeah. group, The Majestics. Why don't you tell us about The Majestics yeah. a little bit? Well, The Majestics were at the high school where I, I attended, the Booker T. Washington High School. At first, we were called the Bathroom Four because we were singing in the bathroom, and that that acoustic sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> so we were called the Bathroom Four. So when we did a contest, the principal, Mr. Williams, said, "What shall we call you guys 
to come out to, you know, to, to be on the show. We said, the bathroom four. He says, no, you're not. You're not coming on stage like that. Saying it says, somebody say, the bathroom four. So uh, one of the guys in the group came up with the, the name Majestics. And the Majestics cut a single, Nighty Night and yeah. Caveman, um, and that it got that record was distributed by Henry Stone in Miami. Yes, yes. After the Majestics, you formed the Melonaires. Talk a little bit about the Melonaires and how you guys opened for the Soul Stirrers. Oh, the Melonaires. Uh, well, a gospel group started out, and there was a lady here, a disc jockey, that was, uh, I think her name was June McRae, and we started a gospel group. And uh, some some kind of way she found out about us, and she came to one of our rehearsals. We were really good. We really were a good, good, good group. And she became the uh, the manager. So the Melonaires opened for the Soul Stirrers when Sam Cooke was leading the yes. Soul Stirrers. And yes. when Sam Cooke left the Soul Stirrers, the Soul Stirrers offered his slot to you, which you first accepted and then decided yes. that you didn't want to do that because you had seen Jackie Wilson and all the girls that Jackie Wilson was attracted. Uh, Sam had told them about me and Folly, the bass singer, had told them about me. When the Soul Stirs came here to do a date, I was invited to come over to the hotel called the Sir John to rehearse with them. And I went over and I got to tell you, I was so hoarse because I had been singing doing two shows a night. But I knew the words to the songs and I knew every song. And I, But I had what they call the style as what the Soul Stirs wanted after Sam left. So I uh, I did the rehearsal, and uh, everything was fine. So one night I went to rehearsal, because we were going to be leaving that Monday if I made it, and I looked out and saw the marquee that said, Mr. Excitement, Jackie Wilson. Oh, boy. So I said, I'd never seen the man. I'd heard him. I'd never seen him. So let me go see this. So I went next door, and I walked in, and I said there, and I got to tell you guys, he came out bouncing and spinning, and his hair was shaking. Oh, gosh. Women were falling all over the stage. And I said, that's what I want to do, you know? So I hid. They couldn't find me. The stir of soul stirs had to leave, so they left me here. So I forgot what day it was, but I the next time I went to the barber shop and I got myself a process. Now, let me explain about the process. I didn't know this at the time. I went and I went to the Nats barber shop and I had this hair like you see it now. I got the process. As I'm sitting in the chair, it's called potash. It started getting to my head, and it started itching and burning. And before he could finish doing my hair, I ran outside with my hair feeling like it was on fire. But I got the process. I got to tell you, guys, I learned to do everything that Jack Leroy Wilson could do. I learned to be an expert on this man. Uh, he walked, talked, and everything. And over the years, we became very, very, very good. Now, I could say friends. He was actually a friend, in which Jack didn't really have that many friends. You're talking about Jackie Wilson, just so that everybody's yeah, clear. Yeah, really and, and I could be very good friends, yeah. And somebody that your wife, Joyce, later became a very important person in her life and the godfather to her yeah. daughter, Michelle, as yeah, well. Yeah. Let's get back to the music for a second. Okay. Something that I did not know before you know, getting ready for this class is that mm -hmm. you and another Sam, Sam Early, wrote a song yes. that everybody knows, but I don't yes. know if a lot of people know that you wrote it. Money, that's what I want. Tell us that story. Oh, yeah. Yes. At the time, 
I was into writing songs with another young man by the name of Clarence Reed, which later turned out to be working for Henry uh, Stone. Uh, what did he come out to be? A blowfish. Uh, a blowfish. And he and I went to the same school. He taught me how to write the songs. One day I was sitting there and it was a lot of things going down here like pimps and uh, prostitutes and whatnot. And I was in that, that neighborhood. I wrote the song, wrote the words. I didn't know anything that you get paid for this or paid for that. But I took the song over to Henry Stone and I said, you know, uh, this is what we want to record. He's, and he and he's the one that told me that the song was, he said, ah, nobody want to hear that kind of, where do you get that from him? You know? And so I, I forgot all about it. He said, ah, we're, we're going to take care of you. Never was taken care of. And I never heard about the song again until after. And that became someone else's song. So if you look at, if you look at the famous Motown song, Money, That's What I Want, which everybody yeah. knows, you know, money yeah. don't buy everything that's true, but what it right. don't buy, I can't use, I want money. So right. that was you and Sam early, but Henry yeah. Stone sold it to Barry Gordy. I'm pretty sure he did. I'm pretty sure he did. I wasn't there, but I that's what I understood. So let's fast forward again, because there's so much music to talk about. And let's mm-hmm. talk about this club in town called the King of Hearts. And yes. you you lied your way into the King of Hearts <laughs> one night because they needed an MC singer comedian and you didn't have any experience, but you took the help wanted sign, you walked in, you're like, I'm your guy. Yeah. You got a problem with that? I mean, listen, <laughs> I was with my boys. I was with my boys and I'm in the twenties, you know, some twenty or twenty one, I don't know, something like that. And we walking by, well, you try to impress because you're the littlest guy in the uh, with these four guys that you're around with. So when we walked by this club, there was a sign saying, we need a singer, MC, uh, hiring to do this. You dare me to do something and I would take you up on it. So they looked over and they said, Sam, I bet you won't go over there and, and do that. Yeah, I do that. So I walked over, and the owner of the club's father was sitting at the door, and he said, yes. And I said, I can do that. He said, do what? I said, I can do that, what that sign says. Really? Yes. And he said, how long have you been doing this? You look rather young. Yeah, I know, but I, I can do this. Where have you done this? And I said, the Fountain Blue. The Fountain Blue, yes. Who have you ever emceed for? And I, yes, I said Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. He said, you did, yes, sir. And when did you do this? I said, the last time Mr. Sinatra was in town, I was, you, and you were the MC. Not understanding that Frank Sinatra didn't have MCs. I didn't know that. So I said, I was an MC. And he said, and let me get this straight. You emceed for Frank Sinatra? Yes, sir. Sammy Davis Jr.? Yes, sir. Okay. Billy Eckstein and all this. He said, you did? Yes, sir. Okay. When can you start? Whenever. He said, tomorrow night. Now, what you must do, you must sing a song, tell a joke. You know how to tell a joke? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. And then after the, then you take a break and then you come back and you bring on the, the amateur hour. Yes, sir. You got that? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I I didn't have, you know, showbiz clothes. I had my gospel suits that, you know, that I had the, the same gospel in. So what I did, I had my grandmother to cut the one of my suits to the knees to make them like short pal pusher or whatever you call it, suit. It's long socks. If you've ever seen Rufus Thomas, you would you would understand what I'm saying. Huh. <laughs> I got that. 
So I did it anyway to make a long story longer. I went back and I sang Danny Boy and you never smile again. And I did that every night until the the gentleman that became the, the, the manager of Sammy Dave, John Lomelo, came to me. First or second of all, he said, those jokes, when are you going to tell a joke? Well, I thought I was telling a joke. I really did. I would say, like, uh, knock, knock. And the audience would say, who's there? And I would go, whatever. And he said, Sam, first of all, you sound stupid. Second of all, don't you know any other songs besides I'll Never Smile Again and Danny Boy? I didn't. Sam, just don't sing. Don't tell jokes. Just be on time to start the amateur hour. And that's how that began. And basically, that's how I met Dave for the next 20, 20, 21 years. Well, let, let's talk about that. So you're hosting Amateur Hour, and one night Dave Prater walks into Amateur Hour, Amateur Night rather, to perform at Amateur Night. And Dave had a rough first night, and you helped him. Why don't you tell the story? He did have a, a rough night, I would say. So when he came out, I said, who are you? And he said, my name is Dave. And I said, okay, Dave. I'm pretty sure Dave has a last name. He said, Prater. And I thought, I said, what? Prater? Who? What? He says, Prater. I said, okay. Now, when the show started, there was a young lady by the name of Elois Foreman, Dave, and uh, another guy that was imitating uh, Elvis Presley, which his last name was Presley. They called him Elvis Presley Jr., right? That's what they called him. Elvis Jr. (laughs) They did. And he walked, uh, after they all had gone on, it was, and, I, and I said, now, young, young everybody, you've heard about this young man that you've heard all singing all over town, and he's been winning singing Sam Cooke. He's a, Sam, like a Sam Cooke Jr. I didn't know that was true. That was, well, that was loud true. I was just making up something. But tonight he's going to do a Jackie Wilson song. Let's give him a great, big round of applause. Dave Prater. Uh, I said, what you say your name is? He said, Prater. I said, Dave Prater. So he walks up, and Sam Early, the, the, the organ player, gave him a, an arpeggio, and he started out. And that was good, but what happened when he got in trouble, he didn't know the verses. He didn't know the verses. He got tied up with the verses. I knew Jack, and I knew the style of Jack, and I knew everything about Jack. I became an an expert on Jackie Wilson. So I said, and they were saying, get him off the stage. They were throwing plastic cups at him and, you know, and things. So I said, look, I know Jackie Wilson. I know the song. I'll help you, but I'm not going to stand. I'll get out of the way. When, when, you, when you get to the verses, I'll step back, but I'll whisper the words to you in, uh, in your ear. So he started again, and when he got to the verses, I started repeating the words to him. Fine. He's already in trouble. So by this time, Dave... I was trying to pull my foot back so I didn't step on the electric cord. And uh, it was pushing the microphone to the floor. And Dave was trying to catch the, you know, the, the, the microphone. And I was trying to catch it, too, because it was falling in front of me. And we went, both went down on the floor. The audience, the crowd went crazy. They thought that was the act. They thought that was it. It was set up, to, designed to be that. No, it was not. Johnny, the uh, the manager, came to us and he said, how would you guys like to work here? Oh, my God, what an act. What the, oh, my God. And that's how Sam and Dave began. It was a fluke. It was not supposed to be outside of the nightclub. It was right here locally entertainers, professional at the King of Hearts. So that's how Sam and Dave started. 
It's amazing, you know, what part circumstance plays in life, because if you hadn't lied your way in to host Amateur Hour and be the MC at the King of Hearts Club, and Dave hadn't come from his job at the bakery to sing that night, right? Yes. There wouldn't be a salmon day. And if the microphone hadn't fallen to the floor and you both went to get it and you went to grab it because you didn't want to be charged for a broken microphone by the head of the club, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're totally straight on that. And uh, I, 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 I mean, there are times that day would come from baking bread and uh, he would come in, come in the club. He would be full of dusty flour in his clothing, you know? <laughs> It got crazy. We all hell broke loose. Well, with the singing, what's interesting is that when you think of a duo singing together, you know, whether yeah. it's the Everly Brothers or Simon and Garfunkel or the great duos, uh, you think yeah. about harmony. But you and Dave yeah. never harmonized. You, never. out of the church, it was about call and yeah. response. Why don't you talk about call and response? Dave and I... At the club, we were used to uh, call and response. It was like there was never harmony with Dave and myself. When we got our first time to professionally to record in New York, they had trouble with us because we weren't we weren't harmonizers. We were blenders. We blended. Dave was sort of like a bass baritone. He was not a, a, a high tone singer like a. Jack Wilson or Willie John. He was not like that. But he was just a little key. And I I did all the top stuff at that time, but we were never uh, a harmonizing uh, duo. You know, you guys started playing around town and everyone thinks, oh, Sam and Dave started singing together, got a record deal, had hits, but it actually took you and Dave seven years to get your first record deal. And yeah. your first record yeah. deal was not with Atlantic Stacks. It was actually with Roulette via Henry Stone, and you ended up with Morris Levy. You want to talk about that for a minute? Ah, we got signed from here to uh, Roulette Records. I was not familiar with Roulette Records uh, or anything. I was familiar with the young lady at the time. Uh, I saw her, Dinah Washington and uh, Count Basie, all those people. But I didn't know anything about the other man. I didn't know about the owner of the, of the of roulette. So we, they wrote songs, and I was still writing at stuff, but it didn't do anything. Then you had to get out of your contract, and you yeah. asked Morris, you asked Morris Levy, the notorious Morris Levy, to get out of your contract. And yes. wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles, he agreed and he tore it up in front of you. Did you know how rare that was? Yeah, it, I found out later in in years to come that that was not true. He didn't tag. He he tore up a piece of paper to make us think that he uh, had torn up the contract. They told us, to, you know, if we wanted our contract, you know, we'd have to go and get it from Morris. So David, I got in a car with another friend of ours, and we went to the beaches, and uh, we went to his house, and the maid came to the front door, and uh, she said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, we come to see Mr. Morris Levy. And she looked at us, now, you got to understand, we got our shirts with no sleeves, straw hats, and shorts, and sneakers. She closed the door. Then she came back. She said, go around to the side, go through the gate, and there you're going to see Mr. Levy sitting outside. So that's true. We were in the shop, and he said, in that voice of his, yeah, what can I do for you? And we told him, my name is Sam Moore, and this is Dave Prater. And I said, well, we're on your record label. We are? You are? I said, yes, we are. What do you want? And I said it just like this. I said, we want our contract back. He said, what contract? I said, we assigned to your label, your record label. Yeah? And would you say your name is? I said, Sam Moore and Dave Prater. So he sent his, sent his secretary in the house to get this box, brought it out, and he went through, you know, I found out later, it was fake. You're faking through, like, getting the contract. Oh, here it is, here it is. 
all right, watch this, boys. Look, watch this, boys. And he ripped the paper up. Anything I can do for you? I'm so sorry we weren't able to get the big hits for you. But anything I can do for you, call on Morris, Uncle, 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 Uncle. And I said, yes, sir. Oh, man, he's nice. He's huh. very nice. Wow. <laughs> Henry didn't have no contract. He told him a piece of paper. <laughs> Did Morris ever come looking for you after Sam and Dave had success? No, he really didn't. He really didn't. Sometime I would see uh, Morris in the street. And he would just shake his finger at me like, ah, like that. Because, you know, he was big and tall and ah, like that. But no, he never did. Uh... Let, let's fast forward a little bit. So you get back from New York in the roulette record uh, era. And then you and uh-huh. Dave head back to the King of Hearts. And one night, Jerry Wexler's in the audience and you get signed. Not only do you get signed to Atlantic, but you actually get something you didn't have with roulette. You got an advance and you got a royalty. Yeah, didn't know nothing about that kind of stuff. We just know that we were getting a signing bonus, what they call a signing bonus. But see, when we signed the record deal with Atlantic, we were in California. You see, we were in California. So when we came back and we got the signing bonus and this contract, oh, man, we're going to be recording by this time, I'm here to Atlantic Records because they got a lot of people on there that I uh, I recognized musically. And I was like, wow. And, oh, man, was I happy? Jerry said, we're going to send you away to another city to record because we were booked up for everything here in New York. And I remember so well that day, he said, where? He said, we're going to send you to Memphis. And I said, So I said, Memphis, Memphis, to myself, Memphis. We had a manager that's the same as Otis Redding, and uh, they put in for, we got a car, you know. We thought we were were on our way, man, come on. And we rolled down to Memphis, and when we pulled up with the car, and standing outside was Jim Stewart, his wife was in satellite record shop because she didn't come out yet. And then there were Al Jackson. And, and when I got out and I looked, hello, Sam. Welcome to Stack Records. Okay. Well, I had heard about Stacks. I had heard about Otis had told us about that because we were doing high school, doing stuff there. But when I saw what I saw coming down the street, (laughs) the tears started falling, and I started sweating, and I started crying. I said, I want to go home. I want to go back to mine. I want to go anywhere but where I am. And the reason I did that is because coming down the street was soon after became the producer of Sam and Dave was a man by the name of Isaac Hayes. He had hair and he had the beard. He had on a shirt, a pink, I think it was pink, and he had on chartreuse pants and a white belt, white shoes and pink socks. And I went, oh my God. I was so hurt and so sick. But I, hey, I'm a new kid. On, we are new kids on the block, so what are we going to do? And then the next thing I saw, this young man coming out of a, a supermarket at the time. I didn't know he was the paper boy with, uh, <laughs> packing groceries. <laughs> and during the weekends and during the week, he sold, you know, he did his thing, whatever he did. That happened to be David Porter. So David Porter and Isaac Hayes become your producers, they're not they're not even as old as you are at that point, right? They're they're kids. Yeah. I mean, come on, uh I didn't know the background on Isaac at that time because he was just coming down the street. And I was told at the time that 
David Porter was an insurance uh, broker, whatever he was. He sold insurance. That's all I knew. That was really strange uh, seeing David Porter with a, a stingy brim, hot as it was in Memphis. He had on an alpaca sweater, pair of pants, and they were like jack leg pants. You know, they were coming up to his ankle. And he had old, I think they were brown, rigid socks and brown shoes. And I'm going, what is this? And I, I looked at Mr. Stewart, which he also looked like Howdy Doody. And I went, <laughs> what the heck? What the devil? Let me back up for one second. Let me just make sure that everyone's aware that uh, Atlantic had a deal with stacks. And it was very unusual. It may be the only time that this arrangement between Atlantic and Stax, where Jerry uh -huh. Wexler had you go down and work with Jim Stewart and Estelle Axel. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. you got into the studio stacks, met the band, Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn, Al Jackson, and Isaac Hayes and David Porter are going to write your songs and produce your songs. And the first yeah. time that you heard the songs was in the yeah. studio. So talk about the first time that you heard You Don't Know What I Know. We were on our way by that time because Isaac himself was really, he was determined to find something because everything he had introduced us to and put out, they would put out from the record factory, it wasn't working. Songs like Can't You Find Another Way of Doing It, uh, Jody Ryder, all that kind of stuff. But Isaac Hayes found out Sam and Dave did not harmonize. He was too busy trying to get us to harmonize these songs, and that wasn't working. So what he did, he started listening to some of the things that we had done here in Miami. He said, they're not harmonizing. There are free spirits here. It's a call and response thing here, like a church. Jim didn't know. Jim said, what? He said, yeah. He said, it's like a call and response. It's like a minister and deacons responding to the crowd. He said, this is what we're going to go with. We're going to try to work around that. That was Isaac Hayes that did that. He's the one yep. that discovered that we didn't harmonize. Yeah. Yep. And he really cracked the code. And what's interesting, it was really, you say that it was really Isaac and David's show that they wrote, you and, and Dave sang, and what you guys thought of the song was kind of irrelevant. I See, I had my mind to do songs like gospel singers, like Sam was doing, and Lou Rawls was doing, and, and all these people, and Jackie Wilson was doing. Willie John was doing. You know, I had my mind set to sing songs like that because I figured I could, I could do that better because it had a gospel taste to it. But it was Isaac, yes, it was actually Isaac that put it all, and I have to give credit to this. He taught me things that I, that I have learned over the years, the 60 some odd years, that I have learned from Isaac that I would have never learned today, you know? Okay, so David wrote, he was the lyricist, but it was like uh, Elton John and Bernie. It was like that. David would write the words and hand it over to Isaac, and, and I can't believe today, for a man that didn't read at that time, he would sit there with those words, <laughs> and I guess you would still call that writing. You know, you still call it writing. The interesting thing about Isaac Hayes is that he didn't read music. Yeah. And so no, every everything that he was doing in the studio was just coming from his mind, and he was just doing his it. His mind, yeah. Yeah, it was Isaac. David would write some lyrics, and he would just, some words, and give it to Isaac. And Isaac would say, okay, okay, okay. And he would sit there, and he would write the song. The music and everything. Isaac would sit there, and which he didn't read, he would voice the horn section. He would tell you what he wanted. Then he would have me to come in, sit next to him. And he said, Sam, you sing where you want to sing. I'm going to sing Dave's part. And I think we would have become more successful if Dave had us 
done it like Isaac wanted it done. Not saying like, but saying the parts that Isaac had given him. Sam is going to go here. He's not, going to say, he's not going to sing it the same way, Dave. So whatever we can get from that after we go back and start mixing, we'll take it there. But here, where I want you, Dave. And that's how he did it. Talk about that David Porter went to the bathroom and uh, Isaac said, David, get back in here. And what did David say? David, was, David had gone to the bathroom. After Isaac had got it together what, as to what he wanted, he said, Porter, 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 come on. And from the bathroom, he said, hold on, I'm coming, I'm, I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming, hold on, hold on, hold on, ball. They used to call him ball because he didn't have, no, have any hair. He said, I'm on my way out. And he said, Dad, that's what I want. That's what I want. I want that to be the title. That was Isaac. He said, I want that title there. And he, he started mixing everything, putting everything together. So that's how that started. It was Hold On, I'm Coming. became Sam and Dave's first number one R&B hit and became one of the yeah. biggest hit singles Atlantic ever had. Yeah, it was Isaac Hayes who put that, when he brought the horns in, it was dragging a little bit and Isaac said, eh, Sam is, I don't want to stop Sam from going where he's going. He said, Cody, he's squalling, but we're going to keep that. But I want Dave to sing up under that. And if he had done that, I think it would have become even bigger. If right. he had stayed where he wanted to just let me do what I... But uh, you know how people are sometimes. <laughs> the interesting thing about um, Hold On, I'm Coming, and or any of Isaac's arrangements where he used horns, he used horns almost like you would use background singers. And no he one had did. done that before. He did. He did. I, Isaac Hayes did this. Because we only time he used the background was uh, a group called All in the Nightingales on I, on I Thank You. But other yep. than that, you're right. He used the horn. He voiced horns. And that, when you say voice horn, that means you're voicing singers. Yep. But he yep. used it that way. You get harmony. And yeah, that was Isaac, all Isaac Hayes. Isn't that something? You, you ended up really respecting Isaac after that first day arriving in Memphis and not knowing who the guy with the pink socks was, you ended up really, yeah. really respecting Isaac and believing in him. And, and you loved Isaac Hayes. Oh, crazy about it. Crazy about it. He could get the best out of you. He was soft. So I said, he was taught like, oh, Sam, you can do so and so. And he, behind your back, he would say, you know, he's so lazy. He's so, Sam, Sam. <laughs> Jim, Sam ain't gonna do it the way we want him to leave him alone. But he would come in and say, Sam, I want you to say so, so, so. And I said, okay. But he knew. Listen, I can understand why the ladies loved him because he was such a sweet and nice, and I'm saying this as a man, sweet, nice, genius of a man. Yep. He was. He really was, yeah. Let's talk about Isaac's creating, which is pr probably the most well-known and legendary Sam and Dave song ever, which is Soul Man. And yeah. I know that it's not your favorite song personally, but no one can deny, no one can deny the life that this song has had. Um, and what, what's really interesting is Isaac was asked how he created soul man and he said that he was inspired by the riots in detroit michigan in the turmoil yes. of the civil rights movement in 1967 and and I'd, I'd like to read something that i read online that isaac hayes noted that black residents of detroit had marked buildings that had not been destroyed during the riots mostly African-American owned and operated institutions with the word soul and relating this occurrence to the biblical story of the Passover, Hayes and David yes. Porter came up with the idea 
in his own words of a story about one struggle to rise above his present conditions, almost a tune kind of like boasting, I'm a soul man. It's about pride. Isaac Hayes. That's true. All true. But I did not recognize that. You know, I thought it was, you know, coming to you on a dusty road, good loving, good loving. I, 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 I equated that to just another talking about women. I don't know. I think Joyce said something to me many, some years ago and said, have you really listened to, to the words? I'm not talking music. She said, listen to the words. And I said, not really. I said, not really, Joyce. I said, it's just what it is. It's a, hey man, it's just a love thing, a fast update. She says, no, no, no. You better listen to that. And, uh, right. There's an incredible video from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 1992 with you singing Soul Man. And let me tell everybody who the band is that is backing you up on Soul Man from the 1992 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. You have Steve Cropper from the original MGs. You have John Mm -hmm. Fogarty from Creedence. You have Keith Richards, Little Richard, Johnny Cash, Aaron Neville, Carlos Santana, the the Edge from YouTube. This is insane. You have to go watch this video. It's crazy. itself between Holden I'm Coming and Soul Man has made me a household name. There you, you know, go. I mean, a lot of, lot of, that's why you're starting your school and everything because a lot of people just know that. You know, well, everybody's got to know about the history of Sam and Dave. Right. Everybody's got to know. Yeah. So, I mean, come on. Look what, what has happened. You have made history, fella. Look what you and did. I, you know, yeah. And let's talk about the live show. When you and Dave went on the road, you your live mm-hmm. show was incredible. I mean, I found it really mm-hmm. interesting to read that you didn't rehearse. A lot of it was spontaneous. But the yeah. live show was so dynamic that when you toured with Otis Redding, he didn't want to go on after you. You guys put on a show. Oh, you know what? I didn't hear Otis say it. They said he said it. I don't believe he really Otis because Otis was really killed him. I mean, listen, listen carefully. When we were out there on the road and he wasn't getting what he thought should have been an introduction to his coming out. I went to the dressing room one time and I said it to Otis. I said, look, we had been on already. And I tell you, I can bring you on with the crowd is going to go crazy. And he said, you do that? I said, yeah. I said, I'll go and introduce you my way, get you out there. So what I did, if you listen to some of the old over the overseas stuff you're here, I'm saying, say his, spell his name, Otis. Then spell the last name, R-E-D-D-I-N-G, Redding. And now, ladies and gentlemen, and he would come stomping. They said the way that I had voiced everything and he got everything on stage, that Otis said, he going to gonna kill me. I didn't believe he said all that. He didn't say that. It's just, <laughs> he was for me to bring him on. Come on, you guys. <laughs> well, you know, the hits kept coming for Sam and Dave. You know, obviously we talked about Hold On, I'm Coming. We talked about Soul Man. Yeah. I thank you. Yeah. Another bona fide yeah. smash.
But then the hit started drying up. And when they did, you were a little unsure. You, you never had a lot of self-esteem about yourself as an entertainer. And you started using heroin. And it became a very dark time in your life. Yeah. The same thing happened when they pulled Michael away from the, the, the boys, or he left the boys, or when James did what he did, or Al Green did what he did, and all of this. When they pulled Sam and Dave back, I thought they would have let at least Isaac stay there and produce us, and maybe... David, you know, could still write some stuff, but I was more interested in Isaac staying there to produce us because he knew, he knew Sam as well as he knew himself. He knew Sam's tenor, he knew Sam's voice, he knew Sam's tempo, and I thought they may have done that. But when I found out that they weren't going to do it, yeah, you're right. I it it, it just and then they started chunking us around, throwing us around here and there. They couldn't come up with a sound. Well, what are you going to do? Get the man that knows the sound. It's his sound. When they say the Memphis horns, that's not the Memphis. It's Isaac Hayes' sound. He did that, you know? Two two trumpets and a tenor. Come on, you know, come on, guys. Uh, One trumpet and two tenors. That was Isaac Hayes. So it, it just took me... It took me to a very, yeah, it took me to, for the next 15 years, it took me to a very dark place. I didn't care anymore. It definitely drove a wedge between you and and Dave as well. And Dave had some dark times in his life. And I know that in 1970, you said to Dave, I'll sing with you, Dave, but I'll never talk to you again. And you didn't speak to Dave for 12 years after that. That's true. But that was another story. Dave had done something to his wife. And when I found out, I remember going to Dave and I said, you know, from now on, I'll sing with you because we had a long contract for for touring. And I said, I'll sing with you, but I shall never, ever look him in his face. And I said to him, I'll never talk to you, ever talk to you again. And I didn't. I didn't talk to him for the next 12 years. And Dave ended up dying in a car accident in 1988. You know, for you, it took a while for you to get clean. You got clean in in 1983 with Joyce's help. You know, it's amazing to read about everything that Joyce, your wife, did to get you back from, you know, what could have been a very, very dark end for you as well. Well, you know, you got to understand something. It, that wouldn't have been a success if you're not willing to accept what it's offered. And I fought that for years. I fought that. I dug that. I lied about that. And I fought her a lot of times. And I was very against it. And she knew this. But you know what? She just, you know, she hung in there. Because what she was doing, I didn't see any success. I was still saying, and this is all in your head. You know, it, I'm not getting well. I need to go back and do this. And the, the record company doesn't treat me different. And this person doesn't treat me And she just kept sticking in there. And, and actually, you say a mental and physical being behind all of that. And that's, that is something to say because junkies are like that. And I'm saying it, junkies, you know, and uh, that's what I was. But she hung in there. And uh, she hung in there. And through all the backings in there, even to the point of Isaac. You know, Isaac couldn't believe it because he had tried and talked about it, but she, for some reason she hung and she hung and hung. Uh, it's, an, it's, an, it's an amazing story, and I love the fact that it's so intrinsically wound up with Atlantic that the two are, you know, connected. Let's talk about Amit yeah. for a minute because I yeah. know that how, how special Amit was – to you, there's yeah. a great story when when your album uh, Overnight Sensational came out in yeah. 2006. What a great record that Randy Jackson produced on you with yeah. Bruce Springsteen and some of the greatest singers of all time singing with you, who yeah. you influenced yeah. and inspired. Yeah. I know that a few months before Amit passed, he surprised you 
at your uh, press preview party. You want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, he did. I had no idea as much as I loved myself some homage. But I did not know that behind the curtain, Joyce had been talking to Ahmed. See, I didn't know that. And there's no way, if she didn't come to me and say, Ahmed is going to show up at yourself, I'd have said, yeah, okay, Ahmed don't do stuff like that, you know. And I'm telling you, I was sitting there at the club with uh, Randy Jackson, and Joyce was uh, walking the room, getting everything set up for me. And somebody came to the door and said, oh, Mr. Ahmed Erdogan, he's outside. Ahmed came without bodyguard. Ahmed came without anybody. Ahmed didn't even come with his walkers. He came by himself in a car. His driver brought him in there. First thing he did when he came in, and I was sitting there, he asked for Joyce. He said, Joyce here? And they said, yeah. And she brought him in. And I said, what the hell? It's Ahmed. And he sat there by me, and he gave me a big old hug. And I'm sitting there with my mouth open. Can't believe that Ahmed Erdogan is there. And I, you don't know what that meant to me, to the, even to the day that see Ahmed Erdogan come to show his support. I think he showed his respect and love. He understood what your music meant to the legacy that he was creating yeah. at Atlantic Records. Yeah. And I yeah. think yeah. that it's beautiful that he was able to show up and give you a hug Absolutely. and wish you congratulations shortly before he passed away. I, you know, I have a question for you, Sam, from one of our colleagues in London. And we talked uh -huh. a little bit about how Isaac created Soul Man based on the racial unrest in 1967. So we have a question. I'd be really interested to hear Sam's views on the troubles with racism throughout his lifetime and the current state of affairs in the world, particularly in the U.S. But more specifically, what do you, Sam, think that the music industry can do to raise the voices of the oppressed and drive change? Good question. Good question. You know, the music today... What they're playing today, I don't really listen to that much, or if at all. No, you don't have to go back to the 50s or 60s. But you know, that was, it was music to me. That was respect, hard work, sweat. You stay there four and five hours a night to get a song down. That's what I was taught. That's what was given to me by Isaac Hayes and also a man that's here named Rudy Perez. Is it going to get any better? I asked that question about a week ago, and I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm disappointed. Am I hurt about it? Yes. Angry? No, I'm not angry. Young kids don't know, and I'm so pleased that what you guys are getting ready to do in, for the school and everything like that, and the message and the healing that has to start now. I think that's the best I can come up with. The message needs to be a positive note. It has to, it's gotta be. 100%. It has to be because it used to be you could sing a, when you would go and hear a song or go see a, an act on stage. That act come on stage and he sweat, fall on the floor, did what he had to do. But today, you you look at the music they they playing today. That's not what we did back then. That's not what we did. And I and I totally, I am totally set against it. I'm I'm angry about it. Nobody's listening to us, but we're trying to make an awareness. And that's why I'm glad to have brought this up in front of you, because you know what? It's not going to get any better as long as the music is like it is. Brings us to a good point to wrap this up, Sam, because I think we have a full circle moment where we talked okay. about young Bubba spending time in the yes. church, right? Yes. And gospel music has been such an important part of your life. Yes, sir. 
Yes, sir. And listening to the music that has evolved from you from the beginning. And yes. now you mentioned Rudy Perez and now knowing that you and Rudy are finally going to make a Sam Moore gospel album. How does that feel? Yes, yes, yes. You know what I got to tell you? We've been, we've been trying to get these kids. You don't have to like us, but appreciate what was done on our backs, what you do, how you're representing yourself, how you're doing stuff. Have fun with it, but don't don't make it dirty. And they have made it so dirty until you go, what the, why? Why do you have to do that? Who is who's the head of all of this stuff? I'm against all of that. But I think with the help of Atlantic people like yourselves and your staff and, and everybody making an awareness and try to get the music understood and to start healing, I think that's a beginning. And I am fully, I am fully in appreciation. Well, we all look forward to hearing the gospel record. You know, you're still, you. still in such great voice and Thank you so much on behalf of everybody at Atlantic Records and, and the Warner Music Group for so many years of incredible music. And thanks for joining us today at Rock and Roll High School. Appreciate it, Sam. May I say to you, it, it was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot to Sam Moore for sharing his story with us this week. You can catch up with Sam and learn all about his latest at his website, sammoore.net. And make sure to listen to the playlist that we built especially for this episode at our website, rockschoolpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.